Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Billy Bragg. He's the very embodiment of civic engagement, a true citizen changemaker. An unabashed progressive, he wants to see society reorganized so that everyone has access to the means by which to reach their full potential. Over his long career, he has written numerous books on society, and in this episode, we discuss his latest one, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Thank you to the Holder Initiative of Columbia University for hosting this interview in front of a live audience. Let's listen in. Thank you for being here, Billy. Well, thank you, um, So, obviously, everybody knows who you are. You're yes. a recording artist, you're a writer. And uh, I love this part of your bio. It says that your passion is forged by punk and your politics are forged by Thatcherism. And in fact, when I was composing these questions, one of my friends said, does everybody know what Thatcherism is? And I said, I, ho I hope everybody knows what Thatcherism is. If there is a question about that, please ask Billy. Anyway, you wrote this beautiful short polemic called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, and uh, it's brilliant. Thank it's you. short, mm -hmm. concise, and it really gives us a relatively in-depth history on the background of how we find ourselves today in our society. And uh, your book touches on so much, but essentially you argue that the three dimensions of freedom are comprised of liberty, equality, and accountability. So tell us a little bit about how you came to this conclusion that in addition to liberty and equality, we need accountability. Well, given the uh, situation in your country and my country vis-a-vis Brexit and Trump, it's possible to, uh, by comparing how we came to this place, to discern um, what may be the, the problem. And my sense of it is that ordinary working people no longer feel to have agency over their lives. They no longer feel that their children are going to have a better standard of living um, than they had. They're the, in some ways, in my country, they're the first generation since the uh, Second World War to feel that way. And I think that when, when people feel they have some agency over their lives, they're, they're a lot more willing to uh, work collectively. They're a lot more willing to um, you know, think in terms of what's better for the community. When they can see a good future for their children, they want that future to be a positive future. In some ways, the, uh, the agency results in them seeing that the glass is half full. When people lose their sense of agency, when they feel they have no control over their, uh, their employment, no control over their housing, no control over their community, then the glass appears to be half empty. And it's when the glass is half empty that populists can come along to exploit the, the kind of, uh, use the kind of rhetoric that Trump has used and that the conservatives have used about incomers, about different people, about anybody outside of uh, that particular group. So having got this idea that agency is the, the, the thing that's missing, the, the hole in the donut, if you will, the question then is what can we do to address that? Um, and I think that to actually effectively address it, although government has to act, it actually has to be the individual that has to be empowered. And although there are many different ways to do that, I'm, what I'm trying to define with the book is a framework which allows the individual to start to, to look at ways of, uh, of which to deal with their situation. So 
With regard to liberty being the, being the key uh, aspect, obviously that's the foundation of, I'd like to think, most people's idea of freedom. It's empowering. Equality, that's reciprocal. That requires you as an individual to respect the views uh, and the uh, position of the person that you'll perhaps disagree with. Um, and accountability is interestingly both empowering, it empowers you to hold others to account, but it's also reciprocal because you have to make yourself accountable. And I think in an environment, again, which is echoed in my country, where so much of the debate is completely polarised, to try and start to find a foundation for that common ground. I think as a framework to have a discourse that is founded on deliberation rather than disagreement, that tends towards common ground rather than polarisation. We do need some parameters. I'd argue in the 20th century we had ideology to offer us parameters. Whatever our ideology was, whatever our political position was, we each of us had our sense of what politics should be and we were able to bring those ideas to bear on issues, to work out you know, where we stood on them or where the person that we were talking to stood on them. We live in a post-ideological world now. So in need of some parameters to be able to make sense of the uh, macro situation in the world, but also at the same time to give us some framework with which to deal with individuals in our social discourse, particularly in our social media discourse, to deal quickly and be able to determine whether the stranger that we're arguing with is arguing in good faith or bad faith. I would argue that uh, liberty, equality and accountability can give you the parameters with which to decide whether to ignore this person, to uh, block them or to uh, engage in them. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to work on, on a couple of levels, but the thing that pulls it all together is uh, the lack of agency. Yeah, so let's, let's go with that, with the lack of agency. You actually, in your book, made a connection between globalization and the inevitability that we've discovered with the free market capitalism and sort of worshiping shareholder profits over everything and supranational constructs that allow us to move labor and move capital across countries and tax ourselves in different countries as opposed to in the United States. And that's led to a lack of accountability and yeah. therefore, yeah. as a consequence, a lack of agency. Yeah. And in what way do you think uh, it impacts our liberty directly to have less economic agency? Well, in terms of uh, the impact on liberty, I think authoritarianism doesn't begin when there's a knock on the door in the middle of the night and you get dragged away. It actually begins when the regulations are so lax that the powerful feel that they can act with impunity. And we've seen that with regard to your president. Unfortunately, now we have it with our prime minister as well. And not all freedom is a good thing. There is a, a bad sort of freedom, and that freedom is impunity, a sense of being able to act without any comeback. And I would argue that without equality, liberty is just mere privilege. You can say whatever you want, you know, and you can get away with it. But without accountability, liberty is that most dangerous of all freedoms, which is impunity. And it's how we hold the powerful to account when we've lived 
for the last four decades with an economic uh, system that has no accountability whatsoever. You know, the idea of neoliberal capitalism, that the market has all of the answers, if left uh, to its own devices, it will resolve the social problems that we have in our society. When you've let the corporations, given the corporations so much liberty, when any attempts at even small attempts at accountability are met with cries of Venezuela or North Korea. It's impossible to have a, a debate around alternatives. In fact, the, the, you know, the, the key slogan of uh, neoliberalism, which was coined by Margaret Thatcher, is Tina. There is no alternative. And you constantly hear that when people try to put forward ideas that other people more agency. So uh, regulation, taxation, um, uh, unionisation, all those things that, that will give the individual citizen more agency over their lives are immediately discredited because that's, you know, that's what they do in North Korea. You know, that's what Chavez does. There is no alternative to the way we're doing things. You know, the problems with, with capitalism are not, it's not a natural phenomenon, it's systemic. It's like that because people decided it should be like that. It can be different. In Europe, we have different approaches to it. In some European states, a more mixed economy than the United Kingdom is at the moment. But, but there are alternatives, and but they just don't get broadly discussed. So I think accountability is the key aspect there, because what accountability does is it gives freedom its teeth. I would argue that accountability is different from responsibility. Responsibility is what libertarians claim will solve everything. But if you push them on that, it's their responsibility. They will behave. They will take uh, whatever means necessary to make sure that society is fair. The very notion of the idea of taking responsibility, you're owning it yourself. It's something that belongs to you. Accountability requires you to be held. And in that holding, there's a th an, another party doing the holding there. So it implies that there's an external force beyond just your personal responsibility that is also looking over you. And it's that accountability that gives ordinary people some purchase on their existence, rather than being tossed like a, a cork in a storm. Accountability gives them some way of, of, of not only individually, but collectively, in fact, more importantly, I would argue, collectively, coming together in the workplace, in the community, um, within their uh, gender, within their ethnicity, uh, it gives them the opportunity to, through solidarity, to have some agency over their lives. But almost all expressions of solidarity are attempts to achieve accountability. If you look at the great political movements of the last 10 years, they're all, although they seem disparate, they're all accountability movements. Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Gun Control, they're all seeking to hold uh, the powerful uh, to account for specific issues, but they're not single-issue movements. They're accountability movements. Right. Well, we're at a, at a moment of accountability. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily going to work, but all this to say, I think, uh, you, you touched on this briefly about uh, the culture wars and mm. uh, how we engage around that and how maybe we can think about this moment of accountability in the light of culture wars and holding people to political correctness or wokeness and mm. whatnot. And in what way do you think we can use the First Amendment to help us 
you know, muddle through this, probably, mm. because I don't think there's a clear path. No, there isn't a clear path. That is true. I think the, uh, the First Amendment, it's a single amendment to a much bigger document, and it, it needs to have the context of the rest of the document. Part of the book was inspired by the fact that, and I think this is very much uh, an American perspective, it's a libertarian definition of liberty as the right to say what you want to say, whenever you want to say it, to whoever you want to say it to, with no comeback. That's actually not the definition of liberty. That's the definition of Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And, and so you need equality to be there as well. That's absolutely crucial, respect for others. Where that is, you know, that's implied in the Constitution, but not hard, as, as hard as it should be. I, I, I perceive the First Amendment to be a form of license rather than liberty, if you see what I mean. The BBC in London, outside the new broadcasting house, they have a statue of George Orwell, who was one of their employees. And they've chosen to carve into the wall a statement of his, which actually I quote in the book, which comes from a preface to Animal Farm that wasn't eventually used. And, the, and the, it's quite a famous Orwell quote. It is that um, if liberty is to mean anything at all, it must mean the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. And I'm afraid that's not liberty, that is license. That's a license to say two plus two equals five. You know, people don't want to hear that, but I'm going to tell you. It's a license to say the Holocaust never happened. It's a license to say there's no such thing as Islamophobia. License is a different thing. This is why accountability is so important. If we only have liberty and equality, everyone can say two plus two equals five. Accountability is what makes people say, actually, I'm sorry, but it's f actually equals four. And on all those other issues as well. The accountability is the most crucial aspect of freedom. The right to be able to make that exception and to stand up. It's not just a matter of being able to say whatever you want to say. Right. Well, one of the things you touched on just now is respect. How can we use respect? What do we lose when we are not respectful in this dialogue and uh, trying to hold people mm -hmm. accountable? Well, what we lose is uh, other perspectives. It ends up with the people with the loudest voice, the biggest megaphone, the most likes. Uh, they come to dominate the discussion. And, you know, whilst uh, liberty must include the right to offend, it does not give you the right to be abusive. And so we have to fight very hard to ensure that the, the discussions that we have don't fade into abuse. It's debatable where that line is. I would say it's where things become personal. If you're dealing with someone on social media, you're arguing about something and you make a comment, a personal comment about them, whether it's about their position or whatever, their profile picture, whatever, I think you've, you've lost the argument. You've shaded over into uh, personal abuse, ad hominem attacks. So um, equality requires us to calmly listen to the person who's arguing with us, debating with us, and to respect their point of view and to respond to that in a way that allows them to then come back at us to hold us to account in the same way so that the rights that we claim for ourselves, we engender them with the same rights. Through our respect of their rights, they should respect our rights too. And it's pretty, you know, I don't know how many of you get into ding-dongs on Twitter. I do sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to, um, to tell when people are, you know, it's no point arguing with this person, they're just not going to engage in what we're talking about here. They're, they're off over there somewhere. So um, equality is a really, a really crucial aspect of that.
the discourse aspect of, of freedom. And obviously, with regard to um, the economy, it's, it's also absolutely crucial there that everybody who contributes to the economy should get the you know, rewards. Um, I, as you touched on earlier, you know, the, the, the last few years, the disproportionate rewards of profits going towards shareholders rather than to employees or, or to investment in, in uh, the business has been out of all proportion, really. And um, has led ultimately to uh, executives rewarding themselves with unseemly amounts of money, uh, the like of which, uh, you know, very, very outside of kings and queens, very few people in our history have ever had such huge amounts of money. How do you bring those people back into the, into the discourse on an equal terms with ordinary working people? Because those ordinary working people want to bargain for their labour, you know. They're happy to be exploited, but they want to be exploited on their terms rather than somebody else's terms. That's what unions are for. They're to ensure that you're exploited on your own terms. I mean, we have something in... It's true. It's true. I mean, I know it sounds strange, but it is true. I mean, the UAW are on strike currently because they were um, asked by the employers to not take a pay rise in order to help the business because the business was in trouble. And they said, yeah, it's very smart. It's a good idea. Let's do it. Working together which is the way it should be. Now the, the, the car companies are in huge profits. The UAW are like, well, now we're, you know, where's your part of the bargain now? Where we get, we've worked hard. Let's get the benefits of that. And that's what the, that's what the problem is about. You know, they've got their labour. That's their bargaining tool is their labour. So there's an example of where agency works, where the organised labour and, and uh, corporations can work together to, to protect jobs, to protect the community, the viability of the community. Uh, that's the way it should be. Right. Well, this leads me to my Brexit question. Oh. Because I think Brexit is all about economic agency, mm. right? It is that people are unhappy about what they're getting paid or if they are being disadvantaged by potentially labor going in from other countries, if that is the case, depending on where you work, mm -hmm. what you do for a living, mm -hmm. yeah. how much money you make, yeah. all that, where you live uh, in the United Kingdom. So. In this moment, where there isn't really a clear path forward, if there is an ideal scenario, what does accountability look like? What is the result for everyday people? For Brexit. For Brexit. If I were, uh, I mean, the ch the, what probably what is probably going to happen is that we are going not going to leave at the end of October. There'll be an extension till January. We'll have a general election. Whether that will deliver anybody a majority, a workable majority, and resolve this, I doubt somewhat. So, if it were left to me to try and break the stalemate, I would convene something called a Citizens', citizens Assembly, which I'm not I don't know if you're familiar with in this country. Uh, the Irish had one a couple of years ago uh, in which they uh, convened um, 100, maybe 200 citizens chosen like a jury to demographically reflect the, uh, the makeup of Irish society, um, put them in a hotel for uh, four or five weekends where they um, took evidence from experts and submissions from the general public, but nothing, nothing from uh, politicians. Mm -hmm. And they were asked to give some advice to the Irish government about what they should do about abortion rights. And uh, 
the whole thing was broadcast on uh, the internet. Everybody got to say their piece. The people, they kind of broke them down into tables of a dozen people who were, who were spoken to. It wasn't, you know, mass, but it was discussion. Everybody in the table had to write down all, everything that had been talked about at the end of it, so make sure everyone understood what was going on. Everybody got to say their piece. They recommended at the end of the process by 65% to 35% that there should be a referendum on abortion rights, that bring their abortion rights in line, I think, with the UK. And so the Irish government took that advice, they held a referendum, and the referendum result reflected the, the um, Citizens' Assembly revolt, uh, result, more or less. So something like that over Brexit would allow everybody to express their views. And although you know, I'm not a big fan of referendums, they're quite divisive, it may be that at the end they recommend a referendum. But if they did ref recommend a referendum, it would have come from a place of consensus. It would have come from a place of deliberation, not from a place of the Remainers saying, you know, Soji, we're going to do this again, while the, while the Leavers are saying, no, we can't do it, we can't do it, we've, you know. Because we're, we're in a stalemate, really. We're in a stalemate. The, the referendum result, 52 48%, you know, if it had been an election, there would have been a recount. It's not a mandate, unfortunately. And if we're going to have another referendum, we need to win it 65, 35 to put it to sleep for another generation. We might not be able to do that, but we do need to find a, a place where we can come together and everyone can feel they've had their say, everyone can feel they have some agency over the process, rather than just be flung back into the bear pit and do, do it again, back in scrambling in the mud with all the lies and deceit that went down last time on both sides. It was the most divisive day in our post-war history, and I speak to someone who lived through the minor strike, which was pretty nasty, but it's, you know, we could be still talking about it in 10 years' time, I hope not, but I would like to see a way out of it that involves as many people as possible coming to a kind of decision that the politicians have to reflect upon, and a, and a citizens' assembly. I think they've been trying, they're doing them in Canada, they're doing them in British Columbia, they've run a few of them. There's diff slightly different ways of doing them, but they're, they're very interesting way of coming to finding a consensus around an issue. Right. Well, it's all about having respectful dialogue. Yeah, 100%. One of the things that you had mentioned when we were getting ready for this conversation today was being trolled by Eric Weinstein uh, and that he basically doesn't want to debate with you openly, but in the end he agreed and then he had these demands to have a safe debate. And what are his demands and what, what really is safe debate? Well, no, what he, what he wanted to do was... Uh, I, I use the example of Eric Weinstein, if you know who he is, he's a mathematician. Uh, he's also a uh, CEO of one of Peter Thiel's investment companies. And he's a, a member of a group who called themselves the Intellectual Dark Web. And uh, they're not fans of Spider-Man. Um, they claim to be marginalised speakers whose freedom of speech is under threat from leftists, that they're, they're not allowed to uh, say things, particularly Eric Weinstein, is, feels he's not allowed to say that men and women are different. There, see, I've just said it. No one's, ar no one's arrested me. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of classic position of the new generation of free speech warriors. Underneath what you Americans refer to as culture war, I believe there is a battle to decide who gets to write the rules and who gets to break them with impunity. And the same people for a long time in your country have written the rules and broken them and, and nothing's happened to them. 
So that, that underpins the, the, to me, underpins the culture war. It underpins the use of deflective terms such as political correctness. Political correctness doesn't actually exist. There's no political party out there formed around it. There are no people marching on the streets demanding it. There are no intellectuals in Chicago writing uh, textbooks about it. It's a trope that is uh, used uh, by the right wing to police the limits of social change. They're trying to other people who are asking for rights that belong to, should really belong to the community, but are being denied to them. Political correctness is a, a way of trying to build a barbed wire fence around the privilege of predominantly white men. And the intellectual dark web is a manifestation of that. They feel they're under threat from people who have different uh, parameters, different ideas, and most of all have uh, different musical tastes because the people who are challenging them are <laughs> predominantly under the age of 30. And these old guys don't like the fact that their experience is no longer absolutely central to everybody else's experience, that there are other experiences are starting to take prominence. So, um, Weinstein, I mentioned, I mentioned him in the book because he did an interview about the intellectual dark web which uh, Barry Weiss in the uh, New York Times had described. The thing about them, their whole modus operandi was about having no no-go areas to discuss and no no-go people to speak to. This was why they were going to be different from this new generation of safe space, you know, sort of like liberal, you know, the libs. And anyway, so I thought this was interesting. So I found this, this clip of Eric where he talks a lot about, you know, the fact that men and women are different. He's pontificating at great length. It's very important to me, he said, that not only do the intellectual dark web not spend time debating with people who are not serious in their intellectualism, but that we realise it's important to the diversity of mature and important ideas that we do not spend undue effort engaging ideas that are functioning very differently from regular conversation. So basically, there are no-go areas and there are no-go people, and here's a list of them. To me, this in many ways sums up the new generation of free speech warriors. They, they want to be able to say what they say and not be contradicted by anybody. It's not free speech they demand, it's free reign. And that's what they're, they're trying to maintain their position in an ever-changing world. As a 61-year-old, I recognise there's a reason why I'm not played on the radio anymore. I'm an old guy, you know. <laughs> if I write a song about accountability, no-one's going to play it on, on the, you know, the, the hip radio. But if I write a book about it, they'll put me on NPR. There are, <laughs> no, there are ways... I mean, that's partly it. There are, ways of, there are ways of inserting yourself. I'm not excluded because I don't play my records anymore. You know, just had free sold-out nights at the Bowery Ballroom. You know, sorry about the T-shirt, it's laundry day. But, <laughs> but, you know, to suggest that because I'm not played anymore on, on the, you know, MTV doesn't even do videos, I know, but that I'm not played on the radio all the time in order, I'm somehow being censored. That I'm somehow banned. It's ridiculous. Taste moves on. Perception moves on. Style moves on. And there's no point in me crying about it. I'd better go and write a book and get on NPR. You know, so that's, that's my, that was my problem with Eric. And I talked about this on a, on a, a, a Dave Sedder's um, Minority Report 
uh, about this, and he mentioned Eric, and I just explained a little bit about the, the quote, and, uh, oh, Eric got a bit upset on Twitter. <laughs> and said, yeah, I was outraged, I said this, and that I should come on his podcast, and one of the things also I don't want to get involved is that gladiatorial stuff they do. It's like, I don't really want to, I don't really want to go mano in mano with Jordan Peterson. You know, I don't buy it, that gladiatorial thing that it's got to, you know, me and you outside stuff. But he got a little bit like that. So I, I explained to him where I was coming from um, and said I'd be happy to come on his podcast. Didn't hear anything for, like, 48 hours. And when he came back, he did want to debate me, but the only place he wanted to debate me was live on stage in the middle of my gig at the Bowery Ballroom on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, exactly, madam. If you've just paid 55 bucks to see me sing the Saturday Ball, you don't want some... Madam, the idea of a, uh, a CEO of Peter Thiel's investment bank coming out to call me out is not really, is it? You know, I don't invite hecklers up on stage. I haven't thrown out. It's what I do with hecklers. As anyone who was there on Saturday night will know. So, so I, I explain this. No, I'm happy to talk to you on your thing. So he flounced off. He flounced off. And this, this to me, um, again, reveals um, something... Uh, about the new generation of free speech warriors. They complain bitterly about the notion of safe spaces. They're always complaining about students being afraid to talk about stuff and won't debate them. As far as I can see, the safe space movement is not about controlling the subjects of debate. It's about controlling the terms of the debate. It's about saying, if you're going to come into this room with us to have a debate, you've got to respect the rights of other people to express their opinion. You've got to respect the terms of the debate, and you've got to be accountable for what you say. You know, safe space is the three dimensions of freedom made physical, if you like. What it is, is a, an attempt to control the terms of the debate, as, uh, mostly the tone, but also obviously the terms. And that's exactly what Weinstein was trying to do by saying he'll only come on my stage. He was trying to control the terms of the debate, exactly the same as what he was accusing the students of doing. So I pointed this out to him. It didn't go very well. <laughs> and so, as a consequence, uh, I haven't heard from him. You so, heard from him. Um, but it's, it's just these paradoxes of... These are all examples of people who think the definition of free speech is defined by their ability to express their view wherever they want and whenever they want. I'm not a completely cognizant with the complete definition of libertarianism because it's hard to pin it down. But the libertarian approach to liberty does hinge on that individual me. It's my rights. It doesn't grasp the collective notion of freedom, that if only you are free and nobody else is free, it's not a free society. And what the Three Dimensions is trying to do is to repoint the debate away from the individual to the collective in which individual freedom is, is expressed through respect and through the ability to hold individuals to account. But, of course, one man's accountability is another man's authoritarianism. It's one of those uh, complicated situations where the word regulation makes some people jump. Right. You know, yeah. So accountability, obviously, is a form of regulation. Regulations are a form of accountability. So, you know, whilst I've, I've never been a revolutionary capitalist, I would hold that capitalism essentially is like a fire. If you tend it and control it, it will give you heat and light. But if you leave it 
leave it to its own devices, it will consume everything in its path. So it has to be regulated, it has to be controlled, balanced. People, there has to be input from everybody. Leaving, it, leaving the market to its own devices leaves us in a situation where, well, it leaves us in a climate emergency, most obviously. Trying to talk about accountability and getting accused of being, you know, Venezuelan or North Korean. Because I don't think this polemic is a left or right argument. There is a critique of neoliberal capitalism in there because that's an example of the lack of accountability. You know, any, any politician who ever says the markets will decide is avoiding accountability. I've heard that. I stood in a TV studio once waiting to go on and be interviewed when a Tory minister was asked if he was going to raise the amount of money we give in Britain to uh, women who have a number of children. We call it children's allowance. And he said, we'll have to wait and see what the bond markets say about that now. I don't remember voting for no bond markets. So that aspect of neoliberalism in the book is a critique, an economic critique. But um, I think really the argument is about empowering the individual rather than winning points for the left or uh, defeating the right. Right. Well, this goes back to your whole chapter on equality mm. and that we do everything on equal terms yeah. and why we have regulations so mm. that everybody has a level playing field, so to speak, which is yeah. you know, not easy that. to achieve, no, of course, no. but and it's always going to be slightly mm. unfair. Mm. But so if I wanted to ensure freedom, if that's my goal yeah. as an individual, what are two things that you recommend I can do? Well, you can, you can be fearless in your... Uh, willingness to speak your truth, as you see it. Respectful of the equality of others to speak their truth and to use those two arguments to try and find a genuine truth. But most of all, I think you can be conscious of the fact that you have to be yourself accountable in your interactions with, with other individuals and expect that they reciprocate with that. So that in the end, you have a, uh, the opportunity to engage with them and have a discourse with them, a, a dispute with them, rather, in which you come out of it with more light than heat. I think there's far too many of the debates we have, whether it's on social media or in TV studios, uh, end up more heat than light. And, and I'm trying with the, with the, the three-dimensional argument to create that space where we can meet and discuss difficult issues in a way that is uh, conducive to coming out with some kind of consensus around them. I don't think there's enough of that in, in the politics in my country and the politics in your country. Yes, here, here. Well, you wrote this book. What prompted you, aside from being able to be on NPR, uh, yeah. which you were this morning, congratulations. Uh, what prompted you to write this book now, at this time? Well, I think... Um, if I'd have written it 10 years ago, it wouldn't have resonated. It really would have been a critique of globalisation. It would have been like that. Because I've been thinking about this since globalisation. I wrote a song uh, 20 years ago called MPWA, No Power Without Accountability, which specifically addressed the anti-globalisation movement, which is the 20th anniversary of Seattle is coming up, I think, uh, next year. It would have been in that context. But obviously the rise of Donald Trump as an individual who acts with impunity and how do we hold someone like that to account. That is one of the great challenges. You know, in my country, our uh, history hinges on a moment of accountability, which is the execution of Charles I in 1649. Our, our civil war was caused by 
Charles I's adherence to the absolute power of the monarchy, the belief that the king had the answer to all the questions and couldn't be challenged. Parliament disagreed with that and believed that they had uh, the right to have some say in the process of making policy. We had a civil war over it, and although the king was defeated, the royalists were defeated, the king still refused to accept that Parliament had a role to play in holding the monarch to account. And as a result, because Parliament believed fundamentally in accountability, they did something that had never been done before in history. They put a monarch on trial for treason. Never been done before. Before, treason was something that you did against the monarch. But after 1649, treason became something that you did against the state. Saddam Hussein was tried on the same grounds as Charles I and gave the same defence. What right do you have to try me? I'm the head of state. But the point is that, that that's a really key moment. You know, there's plenty of kings in our, and queens in my country who have just been snuffed out around the back of the, 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 to, the tower, you know. A dagger up between the shoulder blades, sorted. But the... the but <laughs> it works. Um, um, well, none of that, we'd have no Shakespeare kids. Come on, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Come on. Um, but Parliament was, because they were so committed to accountability, they had to do this in the open. They had to, they had to put the case there before the people. They had to ask the people to accept that the, as long as he lives, the war will keep going on. You know, it's, it's ultimately his refusal to, to accept, to deliberate, um, to be accountable that led to his execution. And, and subsequently, although the monarchy is restored, partly because the parliament wasn't planning for a republic. If you look in the documents before the trial, there's no clamour for a republic. It's just what they were left with, and they didn't quite know how to do it. Unfortunately, Thomas Paine wouldn't be born for another 50 years. And so rather than being based on rights, as your revolution was, our revolution was born out of more intangible ideas like accountability. So the monarchy was restored, but it was restored on the terms of Parliament. So we have no document in our constitution that begins, we the people. Our Bill of Rights, which your Bill of Rights is based on, is, is an agreement between the Crown and Parliament. That's why Boris Johnson has to ask the Queen if you can... <laughs> Yeah, he has to ask the Queen first if he can dissolve Parliament. So, I mean, I'm sorry to go all around the houses with this, but it, there is a thread that runs through the history of my country, England, in which accountability is the key aspect of it. It has its roots at Magna Carta. I think I was in a restaurant, not a restaurant, but some sort of, I was grabbing some lunch somewhere in a coffee shop maybe, when the TV was on and Nancy Pelosi was talking about the impeachment. And when she said, no one is so, ever so mighty that they are above the law, she was speaking the language of Magna Carta. And that thread, that thread of accountability, how do you hold absolute power to account, that thread, still runs through our, our history, all of our histories, I think. The absolute power now belongs to the corporations. That's where the problem is now, not so much our leaders, but corporate power, that's the absolute power. The market has absolute power. How do we bring the ideals of Magna Carta, how do we bring we the people into the economy to hold those powerful people to account. That's the challenge we face. I'm not offering answers in the book. It's only 17,000 words, but I am trying to set some parameters around which we might work out our way forward. A map is of no use to you if you don't know where you are on it. 
And that's what I'm trying to do with the book, is I'm trying to suggest where we might be on this journey. It's for others to decide how we might get to that, that better place. Well, I think it's beautifully done. Well, thank you. I really recommend everybody to read it. it. It does place us on this map, and it does give us ideas as to how we move forward. So here's my last question. Mm -hmm. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful? Uh, well, I once wrote a song called Help Save the Youth of America. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> and um, some people went out and bought it and uh, went out and got politi politicised, which was, which was great. That was kind of what I was trying to do. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I went down to see the uh, school strikers, the climate strikers down there. I don't think those kids need saving from anything. They're totally on it. They're doing, they're out there. I, th I think the school strikers are the new punk rock because punk rock really was about self-empowerment. It was about not waiting to be told what to do. To you, you know, to, to go out there and, and decide with your, with your peers that your generation is going to make a stand on this. I can remember when I first went uh, on the very first Rock Against Racism march in uh, May 1978 to uh, Victoria Park in Hackney from Trafalgar Square in London, marched through the East End. And in Victoria Park, when we got there, there were 100,000 kids just like me. And I knew then that m this was going to be the issue that defined my generation. We were going to be the generation of two-tone, of artists against apartheid, of free Nelson Mandela. This was going to be our Vietnam War. This was going to be our, what we did in the 50s in England, campaign for nuclear disarmament. And so, and so it was. So to see this generation define their challenge and to take that up, I'm, I'm really, really inspired. And as a progressive, as a socialist, I have to fundamentally believe that the glass is half full. I have to believe if the majority of people had a say in the process of making policy that it would tend towards a more fair society. I think that's um, a key aspect of being a progressive. I think that our enemy is not capitalism, it's not conservatism, it's cynicism that is our enemy, and our own cynicism at that. Not Rupert Murdoch, not the Daily Mail, that's their job, that's how they make their money, the toe rags. But our cynicism, those of us who are striving for a better world, our own sense that no one else cares, our own fear that nothing will ever change, our own you know, concern that it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Rupert Murdoch wants you to feel that way. That's why he puts all that stuff in his newspapers and puts all those people on his TV channels. It's to us to rise above that and to keep hope alive, yeah, but to galvanise hope into action because it's through the action that we get agency and through that agency that we ultimately get that fairer society. Thank you. My pleasure.